talk about uh, anti-Semitism because there has been criticism about the way the party has dealt with it in the past. There is a rule change that has been proposed to deal with discrimination between Labour Party members. Why do these accusations keep cropping up in Labour? Labour is a huge party. I think latest estimates 560,000 members. There are going to be people saying ridiculous things and frankly they shouldn't be in the party. And I'm very glad that so people... But look, what do you why? mean, why are they? Why are they still in the party? No, no, well, if you actually, there's a great article, your viewers can see this, Open Democracy, Anti-Semitism Scandal, Labour, there is a chart on how quickly people were expelled, 90% within 48 hours of it being brought to the attention okay. of the relevant authorities within the party. But as I understand it, Ken Livingston is still suspended and hasn't been expelled. Should he be? He's suspended. Yeah, should he be expelled? Personally, I don't think he should be in the party. Right. But I'm, I, okay. that, that, that decision's not down to me. No, no, no I'm just asking That's your opinion. That's my personal opinion. Uh, you brought up uh, this story on your website. Explain to our viewers. I sat through a fringe uh, meeting of uh, Labour members yesterday in which, you know, speakers were comparing Israelis to Nazis. They were talking about how we need to have a debate about whether the Holocaust happened. You know, they were talking about expelling uh, the Jewish uh, Labour movement, a group of Jewish activists, expelling them from the party. You know, this, this group has been affiliated to the Labour Party for decades and you know now we've got Labour activists calling for Jewish groups to be kicked out of the party. The, the, the lady who chaired this group, uh, Naomi Wimborne, she was speaking in the conference hall this morning. She hasn't been swiftly dealt with. There's no attempt to do anything about the, Their aim is to destabilise Jeremy's leadership what, and this indeed. is what it's about. Labour well, MPs I'm within the party so. who've done well, are trying to destabilise them and they are to absolutely. some extent confecting I'm, these stories. Of I'm saying that this story is there is no validity to it in my experience, no validity whatsoever, and I think you'd have to provide better evidence than has been provided so far. Right. I mean, there was a fringe meeting yesterday that we talked about at the beginning of the show where there was a discussion about the Holocaust. Did it happen or didn't it? Is that no, the sort no, of discussion? I don't think there was a discussion about the Holocaust. Uh, well, it was reported it? and it yeah. was well, on the very fringe. But, but, but would you, would you say that was unacceptable? to Media Democracy, a podcast about politics, the media, and the politics of the media. My name is Dan Hind, and I'm joined as ever by my co-presenter, Tom Mills. Hello, everyone. Tom and I are both on Twitter, and you can also follow the Media Democracy Twitter account, and do like the Media Funds page on Facebook, and follow updates from them there. Tom, tell us who we're talking to this week on Media Democracy. We are delighted this week to be joined by Jamie Stanbiner, who's a graduate student in Middle Eastern Studies and was a co-founder of the now defunct but brilliant um, website New Left Project I used to co-edit with Jamie, so he's a friend of the show. Um, welcome, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Uh, well, thanks for coming on. Uh, Jamie's also the editor of the forthcoming book, Moment of Truth, Tackling Israel-Palestine's Toughest Questions, um, which will be published by OR Books. The reason we wanted to have Jamie on this week is um, to discuss uh, allegations of anti-Semitism at the recent Labour Party conference. We discussed the conference briefly a couple of weeks back on the show, and uh, since then, um, Jamie has published an, an article on his website entitled Labour Conference or Nuremberg Rally, Assessing the Evidence, and Jamie looks in quite a lot of detail at the uh, allegations that arose during the course of the conference uh, about anti-Semitism by uh, delegates and speakers at fringe events, which found their way into the mainstream news agenda. Um, and he finds them to be lacking in any basis in fact. That's the uh, that's a spoiler for the rest of the show, but we're going to go into a little bit more detail. Uh, that article is up on Jamie's website, and we will tweet it out from the Media Democracy Twitter handle. So let's start, Jamie, um, with why you became interested in this and why you wrote this article. So I wasn't able to attend this year's party conference. Uh, I was forced to enviously follow it uh, from afar. And following the proceedings through press and social media coverage was quite a surreal experience because it seemed as though there were two conferences one conference uh, depicted in online reports from friends of mine who'd attended as well as uh, other attendees, uh, testified to a really uh, exuberant flourishing of democratic self-organization. Um, 
a thrilling festival of ideas and inclusivity and a newly mobilized popular movement uh, beginning to find itself. But on the other hand, uh, in much of the mainstream press coverage, uh, as well as broadcast coverage, uh, it seemed as though what took place in Brighton was something more like a Nuremberg rally. Now, if that sounds like I'm maybe caricaturing some of the reports, I'll just quote from a couple to give a flavour. Don't be a Jew in the Labour Party, uh, says Tony Parsons in The Sun. Labour seethes with an abundance of wild-eyed, mouth-foaming hatreds, the tumour of anti-Semitism that grows in the rancid guts of Labour, moved centre stage at this week's party conference. I mean, I think the maybe the uh, the most dramatic uh, account was given by Howard Jacobson in the New York Times. Um, he recalled how the Crusaders swept through Europe, annihilating every Jewish community in their path and warned, when an avenging army takes to the road, there will be no check on the exhilaration of its righteousness and slaughter. Labour Party delegates are hardly crusaders, but the whiff of bloodlust rises even from Brighton. Uh, Now, that was the flavour of much of the coverage uh, of the conference. Um, So that's pretty frightening. It was scary, and once I uh, found the courage to uh, get out from under my bed, um, I decided to look into the allegations and uh, became increasingly angry at the uh, flagrant and unchecked lying to the point where I felt compelled to uh, write an expose. Okay, so we'll go into a little bit more detail as to the ins and outs, the the accusations and your particular findings, but by way of background, uh, this isn't the first time that you've um, examined accusations of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, is it? Uh, It's not. So the... uh, The deeper background is that anti-Semitism, and this will be familiar to um, uh, people who've had an experience uh, as being part uh, part of the pro-Palestine solidarity movement. Um, Anti-Semitism has long been weaponized by Israel and its organized supporters to discredit critics of Israeli policy. This has tended to um, happen under the conceptual rubric, the new anti-Semitism, the central conceit of which is that uh, the way people talk about Israel uh, is, or rather, the way people used to talk about Jews, uh, they now talk about Israel. Israel uh, criticism of Israel is the kind of politically acceptable outlet for the age-old uh, animus against Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, and since 1967, when Israel's occupation began. Uh, whenever Israel has come under especially heavy criticism and pressure to make concessions uh, to its neighbouring states or to the Palestinians, we've tended to see loud claims of a resurgent or a new anti-Semitism from its supporters. Uh, This happened in the 70s, it happened after the invasion of Lebanon by Israel in 1982, it happened during the um, Second Intifada, Um, And it happened in the wake of Israel's uh, massacres in Gaza since 2008-9. What's distinctive about the Labour anti-Semitism smear campaigns um, is that in this case, anti-Semitism is being used not just against supporters of the Palestinians, uh, but also against an elected insurgent party leadership and its newly mobilised supporters. That is to say, it's being used not just by Israel's apologists against critics of Israel, but also by uh, the Tories against Labour, and by certain uh, figures and factions within Labour against um, the leadership. Now, as you say, the furore around the party conference in September wasn't the first outing of this, um, wasn't the first iteration of this um, smear campaign. Ever since he became a serious leadership prospect, Corbyn's opponents, both beyond and within the party, have sought to portray him and his base as extremists. Uh, And uh, a second strand of this has been to portray his newly mobilised base as thuggish. Uh, In this connection, allegations of anti-Semitism, of being soft on anti-Semitism, 
have been deployed by Corbyn uh, against Corbyn multiple times. So they first surfaced during the leadership campaign mm-hmm. um, when Corbyn himself was accused of uh, cozying up to dubious and anti-Semitic forces like Hezbollah and Hamas. Uh, the kind of centerpiece allegation of that uh, round was that Corbyn had referred to Hamas as, quote, our friends. Uh, Corbyn and that was in the context of meeting a representative of, of Hamas in Parliament. That's right. He'd organised an event in Parliament um, to which he'd invited a representative of Hamas on the grounds that whatever one thinks of their politics, which certainly aren't Corbyn's, uh, they are a significant force among the Palestinians and their participation is a prerequisite for any serious attempt to resolve the conflict. So in that connection, he invited a representative to uh, take part in a meeting in Parliament. And when introducing the panel, he he used the phrase, which I'm sure he immediately regretted, our friends, when referring to Hamas. Um, So that was the first round. The the, the kind of second big uh, Labour anti-Semitism hysteria um, happened in early 2016, ahead of the local elections. So it was kind of in March, April, May 2016. Um, that round began with claims of institutional anti-Semitism at the Oxford University Labour Club. Uh, a, 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 a member of that club resigned, um, claiming institutional anti-Semitism, and his claims were picked up and ran with in the national press. Uh, because of course everyone cares about what goes on at uh, Oxford, uh, what goes on in Oxford student politics. Um, uh, the Conservative Party Research Office, it seems, at any rate, someone then uh, began an effort trawling through the social media accounts of Labour members, even very junior members, digging up old tweets and old Facebook posts, which were then drip-fed. Uh, to the press, often via the um, right-wing blog Greedo Forks, um, to create the impression of a mounting crisis. And the this building media uh, sort of crisis was then tipped over the edge by a couple of high-profile cases. Naz Shah, MP, who was alleged to have made a couple of uh, anti-Semitic Facebook posts, and then Ken Livingston, um, of course, a close ally of Jeremy Corbyn, who uh, uh, publicly defended Nas Shah. So I went through those allegations at the time in, in an article for Open Democracy, and I found, in, in a nutshell, that they constituted wild extrapolations from a tiny number of incidents, some of which had themselves been misrepresented. And I think what I found striking about that particular round of uh, hysteria in the media, that concocted crisis, was number one, the way in which um, the media was drip-fed the raw materials of a witch hunt at a rate calculated to keep the hysteria going, um, precisely in rhythm with the immediate political imperatives of the Conservative Party, number one. And number two is how not a single journalist felt any obligation to um, fact-check, to verify, to invest any effort in scepticism of the uh, allegations. So what we saw uh, around the conference, the Labour Party conference in September, the kinds of claims which I quoted from uh, before, were in these respects a very close reprise of the earlier campaign. So for listeners who um, want to have a look at what Jamie's written about that previous campaign, there's there's an article on um, opendemocracy.net called Jeremy Corbyn hasn't got an anti-Semitism problem, his opponents do. Uh, And that that, that was an article which you published in, in April, and this was focusing on that second round of accusations which ran from from when, like March to May 2016, what was the yeah. what was the immediate sort of political context to that? I mean, you mentioned um, obviously the, the Conservative Party having a role. Um, it was ahead of the local uh, the local and mayoral elections. So there was the mayor, there was the election for mayor of London, uh, as well as other mayoral elections and the local elections around the country. 
Yeah, and so this this was a particularly um, fragile moment for the for the Corbyn project. Then it was a, a time at which Corbyn and supporters really um, felt under pressure, where the future or uh, trajectory of the party seemed very uncertain, and, and that whole sense of crisis that was emerging around claims of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party was sort of part and parcel of that. Um, right, it was back, some of which presumably was coming from also the the right elements within the the, the right or the um, let's say the sort of centrist, if you like, establishment of the Labour Party. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there were three, to some extent, overlapping uh, but distinct networks involved in that particular um, contrived crisis. There were pro-Israel networks within and beyond the Labour Party. There was the right wing, the Conservative Party, and its, um, you know, aligned out media outlets. Uh, and there were elements within the Labour Party bureaucracy and um, parliamentary party, which um, either opposed Corbyn on an ideological level or um, feared that he was leading them to electoral oblivion. Uh, and which wanted him out as quickly as possible. And, I mean, if we recall back, the, the strategy of the bureaucracy and uh, certain you know, centrist and right-wing elements of the party back then was essentially to keep the leadership office in constant firefighting mode. Mm-hmm. Um, so whenever the leadership office and, um, to a lesser extent, John McDonnell's office would try to get publicity for um, kind of a, a policy initiative, um, or to, to lead an attack against the Conservative Party, they were instead forced to um, answer uh, lots of contrived um, controversies and scandals. Um, and the big narrative then was, you know, the leadership is, uh, of the Labour Party is completely inept and hopeless uh, and also dodgy and extreme. And that was a narrative in which, for various reasons, broad swathes of the political and media class uh, uh, partook and propagated, mm-hmm. and but so the, there was that element of I suppose um, yeah, and, and the, the way in which anti-Semitism played into those intra-labor political strategies. But then there, there's also um, Israel-Palestine as a sort of some substantive point of difference between different um, sections of the left as well, presumably, which right. also played a part. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a long and convoluted history whose story um, I don't think has been properly told. Uh, I can't do it justice here uh, and without further kind of investigation into it. But essentially, um, the Labour Party and left liberal opinion in the UK more broadly was uh, strongly pro-Israel uh, up until the 67 war and even really up until the 82 Lebanon war. Mm-hmm. Um, uh now, the 82 Lebanon war, and then even more so the 1987 uh, Intifada, a mass civil revolt by Palestinians against the Israeli occupation, which was met with heavy repression, that really, they, they, they were turning points in liberal left um, opinion in the UK about Israel. It marked a, uh, to, to, and I should add, together with the shift of Israeli politics rightwards from 1977, um, all of this pushed liberal left opinion in the UK away from supporting Israel towards a more ambiguous position and ultimately towards sympathy um, for the Palestinian cause. Now, under um, Tony Blair, the Labour Party leadership was strongly pro-Israel, in growing tension with the views of most of the party's membership uh, and base. Uh, You may recall that the outrage at Blair's complicity in Israel's 2006 war on Lebanon, uh, attack on Lebanon, was the final straw which led to his ouster. Uh, so now in Corbyn, we have a veteran Palestine solidarity campaigner uh, at the party's helm. And I think what the thing to take from this is that the issue of Israel-Palestine uh, has long been Im- imbricated in broader battles about modernization, Atlanticism, the war on terror, new labor within the party. And it's come to take on uh, a symbolic uh, meaning and resonance going beyond the issue itself. Mm-hmm. So it, it partly became sort of associated with, I suppose, radical student politics and assuming a more balanced or pro-Israel position as they would um, have it more balanced position was kind of seen as a, 
um, representative of a more sort of grown-up kind of moderate politics, a kind of, um, yeah, establishment stamp of approval, if you like. And that they've moved away from this sort of, yeah, polemical politics and, and street activism and the rest of it. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you before we get um, go into a little bit more detail about um, the accusations of anti-Semitism and how far they hold up or, or don't, um, uh, about um, the actual level of um, anti-Semitism in British society, because it seems like a sort of obvious point to make, but one that, get, that gets lost, um, which is that to question claims of anti-Semitism being made in these particular political scandals isn't necessarily to... Um, question the reality of anti-Semitism. I mean, quite contrary, it's, you can argue that um, actually examining the evidence um, that's of uh, what's being claimed is a much more serious way of, um, of taking racism seriously. So I wonder if you could sort of, before we dive into that, give a bit of context on, on what we know about um, anti-Semitism and how it manifests itself in, in different political sort of um, traditions. So the... Um the evidence we have suggests that anti-Semitism in, in, in the form of active, self-reported dislike of Jews, um, it has been stable for many years, around 5 to 7% of the general public, of the population. Uh, now, relative to other, um, to, to prejudice or dislike uh, against, say, Muslims or Roma, uh, this is relatively low. Um, but uh, it's obviously five, five to seven percent too many. Um, but the, the 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 important thing I think for our purposes is that it's remained stable over time. Uh, the that body of evidence doesn't support um, the claim that there has been a recent surge or increase in general levels of um, dislike of Jews in the population. Uh, now there's another measurement of antisemitism which looks at not uh, not um, self-reported dislike of Jews, but the prevalence of particular beliefs which are held to be anti-Semitic. In other words, the um, the spread of uh, the extent to which certain prejudices are present within British society, and that um, those those surveys tend to report higher figures, uh, maybe I think twenty to thirty percent population holding at least one prejudice. Prejudiced belief about. And what sort of questions are, there, are these surveys asking? Uh, things like um, Jews uh, think they're better than everyone else. Uh, Jews have too much power in the media. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a list of such statements. Some of which I I uh, agree are highly dodgy. Uh, some of which I think aren't necessarily indicative of anti-Semitism. Uh, but in general, I must say, like my experience is that. Society is awash with all sorts of prejudice uh, against Jews, against Muslims, against fat people, short people, bald people, ugly people, um, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm not at all surprised that uh, there are prejudices against Jews as well. Um, what I think the evidence shows is that number one, uh, there's been no sudden increase in this. Uh, number two, um, what prejudice exists against Jews is relatively marginal. Uh, and relatively mild. It doesn't result in uh, material disadvantage and discrimination in the way that many other prejudices do. As for the distribution of uh, anti-Semitism across the political spectrum, there was a recent study by the Institute for Jewish Policy Research, uh, and it found that basically uh, anti-Semitism is evenly distributed across the party and also ideological spectrum, with the exception of the far right, uh, where it's disproportionately present. Should we um, should we, we move now and look in a bit more detail at the the story of uh, an outburst of um, anti-Semitism at the recent Labour Party conference? This is the this is the subject of of the, the long article you've you've just published, um, you've taken the time and trouble to look at these stories, look at the various controversies. Can you give us your your summary of of what substance there is to these stories? Right. Um, 
So it's very striking. I mean, I already sampled some of the claims which were made uh, about the conference and the party um, in general. I'd just like to mention one other quote because I found it so uh, astonishing, given who it came from. Uh, the head of the Equality and Human Rights Commission, um, Rebecca Hilsenrath, uh, felt moved to declare during the conference that, quote, the Labour Party needs to do more to establish that it is not a racist party. So when when I hear sweeping claims like that, I look for the specific inc incidents which are used to justify them. And the striking thing in the case of the Labour Party conference is that none, not one, of the specific allegations of anti-Semitism at the conference withstand scrutiny. Every single one either misrepresents what happened or imputes anti-Semitism uh, where it did not, in fact, exist. That's the first striking finding. The second striking finding is that almost all the allegations of anti-Semitism at the conference concerned statements uh, allegedly made there by Jews, by Jewish members of the Labour Party. Uh, now, this is... <laughs> uh, the idea that the Labour Party conference was terrorised by a... I don't know what word to use except cabal of uh, anti-Semitic Jews. It's not a priori false, but it's, it would certainly be surprising. It would certainly be a turn up for the books if that was true. And so I would want to see uh, extraordinary evidence to document it. And as I say, what I found when I looked into it was that not only is there not extraordinary evidence, but extraordinarily there was no evidence. <laughs> so b before we get into the... Uh the claims that were made that there was there's a slightly different sort of political environment um, going into this uh, this conference, isn't there? In terms of not only um, Labour and Corbyn, but to some extent, I suppose the the politics of Israel Palestine or claims of anti-Semitism within the party. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as as we discussed, uh, the 2016 uh, anti-Semitism controversy uh, happened at a time when the leadership of the party of the Labour Party was very isolated and looked to be heading into electoral oblivion. Now, this conference took place after the June election, uh, vindicated Corbyn's position and won over to his leadership the broad swathe uh, of even the parliamentary party. So, heading into the conference, it looked as though this. Um, this newfound unity would extend uh, to the issue of anti-Semitism. The, uh, the Jewish Labour Movement, which is a um, an affiliate to the Labour Party, it's a kind of modern uh, incarnation of the uh, Poelation, the Socialist Zionist uh, Party. Uh, it had ta tabled at last year's conference a divisive... Um, rule change motion, motion to amend the Labour Party rule book uh, to make um, hate speech, uh, prejudicial speech, to make that a grounds for expulsion from the party. Uh, but the way that it had worded, initially the way that it had worded that rule change motion had attracted a lot of suspicion uh, and opposition because the way that it had defined uh, what constitutes a hate incident was very subjective and clearly open to uh, to abuse. Now, ahead of the conference this time around, um, the the JLM negotiated with the uh, National Executive Committee of the Labour Party and agreed upon a, a kind of reformulation of that proposed rule change, uh, which eliminated the problematic elements. And so, heading into the conference, you had the Jewish Labour Movement the NEC, Corbyn himself, and Momentum, the pro-Corbyn uh, movement, um, all, all agreeing and urging delegates to vote for um, this uh, revised formulation. So it looked as though unity had been achieved. And you could see this in the atmosphere um, at the beginning. Um, you had uh, a representative of the Jewish labor movement, um, who was also a conference delegate, he used his speech to conference to explicitly praise Corbyn, to explicitly thank Labour peer Shami Chakrabarti for her role in uh, negotiating the rule change amendment. Chakrabarti, for the for background, is disliked by many Jewish communal activists because she authored a report into Labour Party anti-Semitism, which they see as being a whitewash. 
Uh, and for his part, Corbyn, um, he awarded, very controversially, but he awarded um, the JLM with this, uh, it's called the Delsing Memorial Award for Best Practice. So there was a rapprochement, and it looked as though um, everything would be kind of harmonious even on this previously divisive issue. Uh, what spoiled that party, uh, that love-in, was uh, the presence of uh, some Jewish members of Labour who uh, they've long uh, opposed and been suspicious of the Jewish Labour movement because they view it uh, with justification as being very much part of the Jewish communal establishment, which is a uh, pro-Israel and anti-Palestine solidarity movement sort of establishment. Um, the previous head of the Jewish Labour Movement was Louise Elman, MP, who's also chair of Labour Friends for Israel. The current head is Jeremy Newmark, who used to be the head of the Jewish Leadership Council, which was involved in, among other things, pro-Israel and anti-solidarity movement activities, and so on and so forth. So for Labour Jews who are very much involved in the Palestine Solidarity Movement, um, the prospect of the Jewish Labour Movement uh, gaining a foothold and gaining influence within the party uh, was not something that they wanted to go unchallenged. And so they set up during the conference an alternative Jewish labor group called the Jewish Voice for Labor to challenge the JLM's representative monopoly. Um, and this, uh, this alternative group, the Jewish Voice for Labor, um, it was launched a standing room only crowd. It quickly received the imprimatur of prominent figures, as well as the backing of uh, two major unions. Mm -hmm. um, and what's worse, worse still from the Jewish labor movement's perspective, uh, Jewish delegates associated with the new group used their speeches before the conference to criticize the Jewish labor movement for being for not representing them, and also for its role in uh, fueling uh, claims of anti-Semitism in Labour and those contributions received rapturous applause from the conference floor mm -hmm. um, and so this was a real humiliation for the Jewish Labour movement and they uh, sent, like Jeremy Newmark for example, responded with accusations of anti-Semitism which, which were then picked up by the right-wing press which was the leading driver of the anti-Semitism claims. So, Jamie, can we talk a little bit now about a, a couple of the um, incidents or alleged incidents at the Labour Party conference, which gave rise to the um, the very uh, spine-chilling headlines that you were quoting from earlier uh, in this interview? Sure. So, um, uh, let's take, for example, the claim that the Holocaust was denied or called into question. Uh, at the con at, at the Labour Party conference, um, just to sample some of the claims, uh, Richard Angel of Progress, uh, which is like a Blairite pressure group within Labour, he claimed that quote there became this dialogue throughout the conference that there was a question mark about the Holocaust. Uh, the chief executive of the Holocaust Educational Trust, she said, you know, she found it, quote, shocking to see the Holocaust once again called into question at a mainstream political party conference. Howard Jacobson, again, um, takes the biscuit in the New York Times. He claimed that a motion to question the truth of the Holocaust was proposed. Uh, now, these are all uh, quite extraordinary claims. Uh, all of them refer to remarks made by, allegedly made, I should say, by a single speaker uh, who is not a Labour Party member at a single fringe event at the conference. Um, the fringe event was organised by a group called Free Speech on Israel, which is a Jewish-led and largely uh, Jewish membership organisation. Uh, the speaker was called Miko Peled. He's an American-Israeli Jewish uh, peace activist. Um, and at the... Uh, at this event, he was asked a question. I don't know what the question was because it hasn't been included in the clips that have been released. Um, but his, in his answer to this question, he said, quote, this is about free speech. It's about the freedom to criticize and to discuss every issue, whether it's the Holocaust, yes or no, whether it's Palestine, the liberation. I mean, the entire spectrum. There should be no limits on the discussion. 
Uh, now, what everyone thinks about that, to me, if, if, if it's difficult to establish with, without hearing the full context, whether he was referring to the public sphere in general or Labour Party for it in particular, but he was clearly calling for freedom of speech for the entire spectrum of issues, giving mention of the Holocaust as a kind of extreme example to, to emphasise his point that if I want free speech for every issue, even even highly controversial, you know, extreme topics. Um, by no means uh, was he denying the Holocaust, uh, calling for a debate about the Holocaust, submitting a motion to question the truth of the Holocaust, and so on. Um, and yet it became a kind of... Um, common sense established fact within the media world that, uh, that this is what happened. In fact, <laughs> there was a, there was a, a kind of farcical um, subsidiary, contro subsidiary controversy uh, around this when Ken Loach, the filmmaker and prominent supporter of Corbyn, he was challenged by a BBC News anchor to, um, to condemn the discussion about the Holocaust, did it happen or didn't it, which took place. Uh, now, when Loach res responded that he was at that meeting and there was no such discussion, the uh, news anchor pressed on regardless and said, well, well, would you say that was unacceptable? And then when Loach refused to issue the rote denunciation that was being required from him, um, there was another round of outrage media articles about this refusal to take sufficiently seriously an incident which never took place. Um, so that's one example. Another example, um, uh, it was claimed by, uh, for example, the director of the Antisemitism Policy Trust, Danny Stone, that outside the conference there was a newspaper handed out by a Marxist group which quoted uh, a leading official of the SS uh, as a reliable source of information about the Holocaust. And this claim was reiterated by Dave Rich, who's uh, uh, an official of the Community Security Trust, uh, which is a Jewish communal body which monitors uh, anti-Semitism. Um, now, that fabri fabrication, I have to say, is uh, an especially scandalous because its victim has now been expelled from the Labour Party. And I should just say to your listeners that there's a, uh, if, if, they're, if they're members of the Labour Party, there's now a petition calling for this person's reinstatement, which I would urge them to sign. Now, the article in question uh, was written by a guy called Moshe Makova. Um, he's a veteran Israeli Jewish socialist. He's a uh, one of the founders of the Israeli socialist organization, Matzpen. He was a retired professor of philosophy at the University of London. And his article indeed quoted this SS official, um, speaking favor favorably of Zionism. But by no means did he quote him uh, to express agreement on the point uh, about Nazism not uh, kind of not meaning any harm to Jews. So uh, to clarify, the, the, the accusation is that this article quoted the SS official to the effect that Nazism meant no harm to Jews. And the claim is that uh, the article agreed with this point. The article didn't agree with the point at all. It explicitly disagreed with it. Explicitly described um, the Nazi regime obviously as anti-Semitic. Uh, its its argument was another one entirely concerning um, overtures, uh, reciprocal overtures between the Nazi regime and the Zionist movement. Um, so it was a it was a a really scandalous misrepresentation uh, and a disgusting attack on a principled Israeli Jewish. Socialist. This becomes in the shorthand, basically, person in labor, associated with the Labour Party is quoting a member of the SS. I mean, that's, that becomes a sort of condensed um, common sense of these uh, right. you know, sorts to quote, of claims. To quote Dave Rich, Marxists quoting Nazis to slander Zionists. That pretty much sums up the left nowadays. Yeah, okay, so... Uh, it, it, you mentioned earlier as well um, the New York Times reporting that um, a motion had been passed at Labour Party conference. I mean, that's kind of extraordinary. Like conventionally speaking, we see the New York Times, at least when it comes to straightforward fact-checking, as the kind of gold standard of um, accurate journalism, I guess perhaps alongside 
the BBC. So it, it's extraordinary, really, that this stuff is finding its way into the New York Times, which presumably can then be quoted itself as being an authoritative source, and you know, round and round it goes. Right. Uh, I mean, and that 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 article by Howard Jacobson was trailed on the front page of the New York Times. Um, yeah, the New York Times has been terrible uh, in general when it comes to this story, this issue of labor. Uh, alleged labor anti-Semitism. Um, last year, it ran um, uh, at least four separate op-eds publicizing allegations of labor anti-Semitism. Um, I think this reflects the influence of Roger Cohen, this prominent um, New York Times op-ed columnist, a man who, uh, in his relentless blandness and casual uh, indifference to truth, resembles something like uh, an American version of Jonathan Friedland. Well, it's good to know that they they uh, they have their own um, uh, standard bearer for a certain kind of journalism. Um, one of the things is one of the things I, I think is really striking about your article um, is this is this clear fact that there is no factual basis. Um, in this most recent round of controversies, there's no real factual basis for any of the, the really um, blood-curdling claims that are being made for Labour. And what we seem to see here is a a culture, a journalistic culture, which sees its job not as to investigate the truth of claims, the factual basis, but rather simply to uh, quote from newsworthy sources and then put those quotes to other newsworthy sources. Um, can you talk a bit about how you think this uh, this scandal or this concocted scandal over anti-Semitism relates to other kinds of um, uh, news conventions or journalistic conventions? So I think there's a, a couple of things to say on this point. Firstly, I think it's in, in general it's instructive, just as an experiment, an exercise, to take any story, uh, especially a controversial one, and just fact check. The media reporting of it, because what you what what I found in this case is misquoting, shoddiness, misrepresentation is just all pervasive. Even even uh, you almost can't find a completely accurate quote in the entire coverage of the anti-Semitism scandal. Um, I guess this is a result of time pressure, like rushing to get the headline out before one's competitor. Um, but uh, it's just an instructive, it's just an instructive exercise, and really kind of uh, inculcates a healthy skepticism towards uh, reporting in general. Right. Now, the second point I think is uh, there's a certain kind of Westminster lobby uh, model of reporting, which, as you say, uh, involves journalists talking to. Uh, people who are considered newsworthy either by virtue of their personal stature, personal fame, or by virtue of their institutional location, affiliation. Uh, talking to such people, uh, eliciting claims from them or statements from them, and then reporting those claims. And at the most, then confronting other newsworthy people with those claims and reporting the response of those other newsworthy people to them. And that's the task. That, that seems to be the limit of the journalistic obligation in this conception. And I think what this this contrived scandal illustrates is that whatever the whatever the virtues of that model, um, it's a very poor method for arriving at truth, particularly in cases where you don't have newsworthy people um, expressing skepticism towards false claims. Right. In other words, where there's a kind of convergence. Of uh, across traditional sort of elite divides um, uh, over either making or declining to forcefully challenge um, false claims. So you, yeah. So you can get into situations, can't you, where an elite consensus reigns and passes unchallenged by the media because they don't see their job as to run against the grain of uh, an established media consensus and the spectrum of controversy which exists within that. So the kinds of incuriosity about matters of fact that, that, you've, that you've uncovered in these 
two quite devastating articles, I think, um, is reproduced and is reflected in uh, areas such as economic management, where journalists seem to see it's their job to quote uh, authoritative officials, Bank of England officials, uh, Treasury officials, or perhaps um, successful investors, people who are famous for knowing about the economy in some way, without taking taking the time or trouble to investigate the foundations of what's being claimed. And so you end up with a situation where, as you say, you can find out quite a lot about what the elite agrees on. You can find out a lot about what constitutes elite consensus. You can find out quite a lot about what where, the, where elements in the elite are in disagreement. Um, but you can remain substantially innocent of actually what's happening in the world. Um, exactly, exactly. It's kind of like the, the job of... Uh, in, the, in this model of journalism, the uh, the job of um, fact checking and uh, investigating the truth behind claims is outsourced to um, organised groups, to lobbies, or to uh, newsworthy individuals. And so, again, all the journalist has to do is uh, present a certain claim to a spectrum, an elite spectrum. Um, and report their varied responses to it. That's interesting. I mean, it's a, there's a sense in which, isn't there? This is this is what happens when when pluralism goes bad. Um, uh, you end up, uh, as you say, in this kind of process of outsourcing um, to authoritative figures who are all, in in various ways, interested parties. Right. Um, what's curious about it is is the whole the whole process is presided over by people who pride themselves on their enlightened credentials. They pride themselves on being the sorts of people who will speak truth to power, um, who will stand up to um, power and and stand up for the facts. And yet, uh, as I say, in in, in key areas, they they show no real interest in independently discovering what's going on. I think there's... There's something else that, that happens, I mean, I think, which, which you bring out quite well, Jamie. I mean, I think one of the striking things is that nobody, nobody in the British media has done any of the fact-checking work that you did. Um, and presumably they have, I wouldn't say more expertise than you, but probably more resources, financial resources. Um, nobody's done it, you know, on a, on a matter of, like, considerable um, public concern. Now, the other thing is, that seems to happen here is that um, when nobody does that, a, a sort of a common sense forms around a particular issue and the ways in which um, the issues become framed. And then when it comes to that question of like what you described as sort of outsourcing, um, the uh, checking the veracity of, of the claims, it seems to come fall on somebody like um, Ken Loach or a, a left member of the Labour Party to be able to be talking back. But the trouble then becomes if you're, you're being asked to respond to a particular consensus that's already formed. So if you say, actually, um, like you know, Ken Loach has said, um, I don't actually think that anti-Semitism is much of a problem in the Labour Party, then immediately you sound like you're not taking seriously a problem which, which has already been established without any requirements for facts, that it is in fact a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And it's particularly, <laughs> it's particularly difficult when one element of that consensus, that established media consensus, is that to dismiss claims of anti-Semitism is, I mean, is itself part of the problem. Namely, the consensus is not just that there's a significant anti-Semitism problem in Labour, but that Labour doesn't take seriously, sufficiently seriously, charges of anti-Semitism. So that when someone like Ken Loach um, refuses to go along with false claims, uh, of anti-Semitic incidents, that is taken as itself proof positive that Labour is not taking anti-Semitism seriously. Uh, so it's really, you're, you're faced with a kind of lose-lose, lose-lose um, set of options there. You can, you can, I mean, let's take the claims of Holocaust now, which as I've said, didn't happen. Uh, at least there's been zero evidence presented that it happened at the conference. Uh, there were two sorts of responses to that. Uh, you had Tom Watson, Deputy Leader of the Labour Party, and Shadow Minister Jonathan Ashworth. Um, they were, you know, ambushed with this claim that last night at a fringe event at the conference there was Holocaust denial or Holocaust was questioned. What do you say about that? And they, of course, responded with a kind of 
furious denunciation and said, if this happened, then it's disgusting. These people are cranks. That's to be an investigation and uh, there's no room for these people in our party, that sort of thing. Um, now, that's one sort of response. But the problem with that is it lends credence to the allegation and it's then used by the press as uh, further kind of evidence that Labour has a problem. So you had headlines in the right-wing press saying, uh, you know, Tom Watson to urge investigation of Holocaust denial at conference or something like that. Right. So, so you feed the smears. Now, if you, on terms, if you take the Ken Loach response, uh, kind of uh, approach and say, well, I'm sorry, but this, <laughs> I, I, there's no evidence that what you're saying happened. I don't think it did happen. Um, then you are held up as, uh, you know, an example of uh, a personal embodiment of Labour's deafness and blindness when it comes to uh, anti-Semitism. So, I mean, it's a very effective uh, uh, strategy on the part of the those people uh, deploying it. Given given yeah. the seriousness of the allegations that have been made, and and given the complete collapse of uh, any any sort of claims to factual basis that they that they have, presumably we we would expect there to be enormous repercussions, right? I mean, a lot of journalists would have been retracting articles, they would have been apologising publicly for misrepresenting people. Um, we haven't, as far as I know, seen a great spate of um, self-criticism on the part of um, the journalists. Has anyone at any, at any point put their hands up and said, oh, I'm sorry, that that story that I quoted or that quote I gave was completely fabricated? Nothing. No retractions, no apologies, nothing. There's just been complete impunity for fraud. Uh, look, take, for example, what was Exhibit A of the previous um, contrived anti-Semitism scandal in 2016, uh, namely... Uh, which I already mentioned, the allegations of institutional anti-Semitism at the Oxford University Labour Club. Uh, now, already at the time, it was demonstrable uh, that, and I discussed this in my Open Democracy piece at the time, that one of the most shocking specific allegations in that case was false. Uh, the, uh, at, at that time, the other suite of allegations were anonymous and unverifiable, which didn't prevent lots of journalists, Jonathan Friedland among them, uh, from publicising them. Well, what's happened since then? The Royal Report into the incident found, uh, published later, later, later that year, in 2016, found that there is, quote, not institutional anti-Semitism within the OULC and, quote, no evidence that the club is institutionally anti-Semitic, while also finding, to be sure, that, quote, Behaviour and language that would once have been intolerable is now tolerated, while, quote, there have been some unspecified number, I'm, I'm saying unspecified number, um, of anti-Semitic incidents. Okay, the process within the party continued. What happened to this unspecified number of alleged anti-Semitic incidents? Well, in the end, they boiled down to two individuals uh, against whom allegations had been alleged, uh, whose cases were heard by the compliance unit of the Labour Party National Executive Committee. Uh, the compliance unit is not an element of the party bureaucracy, which is known for being uh, pro-Corbyn, to say the least. Uh, now, this, this, uh, this body, the compliance unit, decided to take no action against the individuals, finding that there was no case to answer on the counts of anti-Semitism. So we went from institutional anti-Semitism to some unspecified number of incidents of anti-Semitism to no case to answer. The entire thing was a fraud. But do you, you know, is there any retraction? No, of course not. Was it even reported, the, uh, the follow-up findings? Hardly. Uh, I, I found it buried uh, within a Jewish Chronicle article, the thrust of which was to assert on the contrary that, you know, there is an anti-Semitism uh, issue. Um, but certainly it was it didn't have anything like the prominence in the media of the initial claims, which have now gone down uh, in the kind of media consciousness as an established fact. Yes, there was uh, an anti-Semitism problem. We all remember uh, back in 2016, there was an anti-Semitism problem. The, um, we've mainly been talking about um, 
print journalism. I wonder to what extent you found that the, the broadcast journalism has, has been different because um, conventionally when we think about these things, we tend to think of the news values um, of the, the print media, particularly the right-wing print media, and the broadcast journalists who are more regulated, held up to higher standards, as, as being quite different. Um, is there any? Did you find any marked difference between the two these two sections of the media? No, not really. Um, I, I think what, what I found was that uh, the broadcast discussions of the issue were very heavily uh, shaped by preceding press coverage of the issue. They took as their framing um, and as the kind of basis for debate and discussion claims which had already appeared uh, in uh, in the press um, and they did so and when they when they did take such claims and run with them they exhibited the very, exactly the same um, journalistic mindset um, and indifference to truth that we discussed earlier uh, a good a good example of this was when as I already described, um, a BBC News anchor, Joe Coburn, challenged Ken Loach to condemn uh, this non-existent um, uh, incident of Holocaust denial, um, uh, uh, which, which supposedly happened on the fringe of the conference. Um, now, earlier that day, uh, we, we could see where, where Coburn had first heard this claim because she, she kind of, um, she chaired a debate between Aaron Vastani of uh, Navarra Media and uh, Alex Wickham of this right-wing um, blog, Guido Forks. Um, and during that discussion, which touched on the issue of anti-Semitism, Alex Wickham was uh, allowed to make this claim unchallenged that um, the previous night at a fringe event, uh, speakers had called for a debate about the reality of the Holocaust. Um, and then later that day, Coburn in her own voice, uh, challenged Loach, uh, saying um, there was a discussion about the Holocaust, did it happen or didn't it, you know, is that acceptable? So it was a nice example of seeing in real time how smears originating in really the, the most scurrilous um, sections of the right-wing press um, uh, are recycled and laundered by more respectable um, outlets, broadcast outlets. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it looks, rather than the, the fearless pursuit of truth, it looks much more like the organisation of authoritative speech. I mean, there and there is a real, a real question, isn't there, as to why a supposedly respectable news operation like the BBC should be taking its journalistic cues from Guido Fawkes' website. I mean, it seems. Right seems kind of astonishing when you when you reflect upon it um, that 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 they are seen as being as it were an, a, an admissible coordinate um, in the grid that uh, the BBC presumably creates when it's establishing its its news agenda I think as much as anything you know it, it comes back to this sort of cliche the Westminster bubble doesn't it I mean Guido Fawkes is one of, is essentially a, a sort of you know, Westminster gossip blog, uh, stroke attack blog um, towards the left. And it seems to be part of those, you know, insofar as it is part of the, yeah, forest of speech, as you put it, it's part of those sort of circles of publicity around um, Westminster, which, um, yeah, determine in the ways of Jamie's outline sort of newsworthiness and, and, and what constitutes the news agenda. Not so much by itself, but probably feeding into that and into other sources. I mean, there also seems to be, you know, a lot of connections between, you know, Guido Fawkes and um, and the kind of tabloid news agenda. Yeah, and I would just add. I mean, I think that accusations of anti-Semitism um, are ought to be newsworthy. Uh, they ought to be. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a serious claim. Or it should be. Um, so my problem is less that, that they're reported. It's more. It's more that number one, um, the it, it's inadmissible to investigate possible political um, motivations or ulterior motivations behind particular accusations. So 
none of the political background is given of any of these figures who are quoted claiming anti-Semitism. Um, again, because it's seen as to even go there, to even suggest that anti-Semitism might be being deployed politically is itself quite a sinister thing to do, even though it's just plainly the case. Um, the, and the second point is that, um, if, is, is that they report these claims, which is fine, but they think their job stops there and they don't actually, <laughs> they don't investigate them. Because um, if they investigated them, then the story would be entirely different. The story wouldn't be anti-Semitism is claimed, uh, has, been, has, been, has been alleged at the, at the Labour Party conference. The story would be um, uh, false allegations of anti-Semitism uh, and the political interest behind them. Mm. So in a sense, you know, that is, that is the real story, um, but, you know, which you describe, which is in order to understand what was going on. I mean, in order to inform an audience or your readers, it is necessary, of course, to provide that context, isn't it? And in that sense, you know, there's a sort of tension, I think, here between um, being able to inform your readers or your viewers and listeners as to what's going on in the world and being able to report what they see as the state of play in a political story. And kind of but the irony of this is that, is that I think underlying some of this is that kind of journalistic conceit that they're not themselves involved in producing news, they're only involved in reporting it. And that sort of mm. seems to lead to this sort of, um, this tendency to, to reproduce um, inaccurate claims because like you say you know if, if, if they start to question the veracity of those claims and that seems to be um treated as if it's kind of a political intervention of some sort and that would be kind of untoward as a you know for a journalist right and just to give an indication of 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 this how, how kind of entrenched this particular understanding of journalism is even like um channel four has this fact check site uh which is presumably distinguishes itself from journalism in general by its determination to uh, check facts. Um, even that, uh, so it, it ran a piece about uh, anti-Semitism allegations, and it didn't. It's, it didn't check any facts. It, it, it again, it quoted um, uh, the conclusions of certain reports that have been done into um, into the question of anti-Semitism. Uh, and it was a, a kind of a, a laundry list of quotes mm -hmm. from from reports. So it's still this. Um, I guess the difference between that and the kind of journalism we've been talking about above is that they quoted reports instead of just a statement by a kind of obviously um, politically driven act individual mm -hmm. or group. But, I mean, it's still just a list of quotes from supposed right. authorities. It's exactly. It's, it's another appeal to authority, isn't it? It's, and, it's, and, it's, and to some extent, it's taking refuge behind an authority and saying, this is, this is something that is, this is a chunk of quotable prose that we can use right. um, to, 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 to set out our store, to, to create the appearance of reporting. Um, and perhaps in some, on some issues that's less popular, problematic than on this issue perhaps where you have uh for example you know it comes to climate change or something uh where you have genuine genuinely authoritative uh bodies scientific bodies uh quoting them as an authority that's uh that's fine in this case it happens to be the case that uh many uh recognized authorities on this issue are themselves um compromised in one way or another and so it becomes well, and also, more more problematic. Also, I think you know there there there's you know climate change is a, is a is a complex and massively distributed phenomenon. Um, what you've uncovered is a set of discrete events, you know, which exist in a unity of time and place, which are which are claimed to have happened, which didn't happen, and which it is I should say very quick and easy to establish didn't happen yeah. i mean it really didn't take me yeah. long to do so and it's and so you know if climate scientists were saying ah the sun didn't rise this morning or you know there's no such thing as a cloud <laughs> you'd be like well you're going to lose you're going to lose a degree of of uh, plausibility or credibility over time um and it's right. really it's the, that's the analogy it seems to me these are these are as it were simple discrete events in the world um which are amenable 
to to inquiry as you as you've admirably de admirably demonstrated. Jamie, we're we're coming up. We've just we've just gone over the hour. Um, is there anything else you'd like to to leave us with um, before we just talk through where where listeners can find your articles? I think I would um, like to leave on two points. Uh, the first is to kind of address to um, Palestine solidarity activists who might very well feel barraged and under siege um, with accusations of anti-Semitism. I think it's regrettable, if inevitable, uh, that after so many um, false allegations of anti-Semitism, after, after such a long record of abuse of the anti-Semitism card as a rhetorical bludgeon, uh, that uh, some activists will now greet each and every new accusation of anti-Semitism with a shrug or even with suspicion. Uh, I, would, I think that's entirely understandable. Uh, we all know the story of the boy who cried wolf. Uh, but I would just urge upon activists to try and uh, resist uh, this impulse and to just take every accusation on the merits. Just, you know, if, if anti-Semitism did happen in a particular case, then, you know, that's, that's uh, uh, not acceptable. And whatever the situation may be, whether it calls for a denunciation or a distancing or whatever the case may be, should happen. Um, so I, that's just a little caution um, that I'd like to enter. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the second point I'd like to leave off on is... I want to uh, resist this idea that taking allegation that, that taking anti-Semitism seriously means um, playing into this media game, this shadow boxing around the issue. Uh, that when you're challenged with an alleged incident, you have to immediately suspend all crit critical fac faculties and issue the rote denunciation uh, to indulge and indulge the bad faith inquisition. Uh, that, that, that that is what constitutes taking anti-Semitism seriously. Um, in my view, taking allegations seriously means investigating the facts of the matter, trying to arrive at the truth about it, and then following due process. Uh, the kind of uh, depraved indifference to truth that we've been talking about was not, in my view, driven by some overzealous concern for Jews' well-being, um, on the contrary, false allegations of anti-Semitism, abuse of the charge of anti-Semitism, uh, enables the real thing by uh, trivialising legitimate concern uh, when, if and when the concern, uh, circumstances warrant it. Thanks very much, Jamie. That was that was great, and um, you know, a really interesting show. We don't really subscribe to the uh, great man theory of journalism here, but Jamie's done some absolutely excellent work investigating these allegations. So do go and read the articles that um, Jamie's produced. The first one on open democracy is entitled Jeremy Corbyn hasn't got an anti-Semitism some problem his opponents do. And the more recent um, article in which Jamie examines the claims around the Labour Party conferences on Jamie's website which is jamiesternweiner.wordpress.com, entitled Labour Conference or Nuremberg Rally, Assessing the Evidence. Uh, Jamie, where else can uh, listeners find you? So uh, my personal blog is, as you said, jamiesternweiner.wordpress.com, uh, and I'm on Twitter at jsternweiner. Excellent. Okay, um, so do follow Jamie there. Uh, do check out his articles. Uh, Jamie, thanks so much for joining us on Media Democracy. Thanks a lot, it's been a pleasure. Thanks again, Jamie.